0: Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love & Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril Welcome to Love & Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. No one escapes childhood unscathed. We all go through something. Some of us experience minor events, challenges, painful circumstances. That's part of life. But for others, childhood consists of multiple traumatic events. My first job as a therapist, I was working with children in child welfare in the south side of Chicago. Kids don't get into child welfare because they've had an idyllic childhood. They're in the quote-unquote system because they've been abused, neglected, abandoned. Childhood trauma for them is a way of life. It's their only reality. It's the only existence they understand or know. As a young therapist, I did my best, but I often wondered, how can one hour a week with Karen make up for the fact that their family was so fractured and they'd experienced abuse in their home, which should have been their safe space, should have been their haven. Trauma is a hard thing to talk about. Abuse is a hard thing to talk about. It can feel so demoralizing, so dark, so depressing. We wonder, is there hope after trauma? To address this question, Sherry Botwin LCSW joins me today to talk about her book, Thriving After Trauma Stories of Living and Healing. Here's a little more information on Sherry. Sherry Botwin, LCSW, has been counseling survivors in recovery from trauma and abuse for over 24 years in her South Jersey practice. Her second book, Thriving After Trauma Stories of Living and Healing, is a compilation of patient stories and some about her recovery after surviving childhood sexual abuse. Sherry Botwin just launched the podcast Warrior Women Speak with Judge Rosemarie Aquilina. My conversation with Sherry Botwin about how to thrive despite experiencing trauma right after this. Sherry, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to connect with you, and you're going to talk today with us about your most recent book, Thriving After Trauma, Stories of Living and Healing. So share with us a little bit about how you came into this space and became passionate about doing some healing work with those who've experienced trauma.
1: I would love to. So I knew from a pretty young age, school age, around the grade that my little guy's in now, around fourth or fifth grade, that I wanted to make a difference when I became an adult. I knew that there were so many things that I needed help with. And while I couldn't get what I needed, my drive to be able to do that as an adult and to offer that to other people is part of what kept me Fighting through my childhood and my young adulthood. So I went to college, got my master's in social work. My first job out of school, I worked in a residential center for eating disorders, the Renfrew Center. And from probably the first or second week of sitting in groups, I was seeing such a correlation between people coming in with eating disorders and reporting a history of a variety of traumas. So I decided probably within the first week of working as a social worker, that was going to be my focus. And I think what else happened for me was as soon as I started working in the field in my mid-20s, I recognized that I had so much of my own buried trauma. I have a history of childhood abuse, and I realized very early into my career that There was a lot of stuff that I had pushed away. So I spent the first probably five to 10 years in the field of doing intense recovery work on my own and then also helping others work through their histories. And once I was further along in my recovery process, maybe 10 to 15 years after I had started working in the field, then I started talking more openly about my own. Experience. I started doing more writing and I noticed the shift in my practice. It was becoming much more trauma focused versus just eating disorder focused. And that's pretty much what I have been doing ever since.
0: It reminds me of something that one of my professors said in grad school. She said, We can't help our clients any further along in their emotional journey of healing than we have been willing to go on that journey ourselves. It's so, so true. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's clear from what you've shared that part of your journey required you to examine some things that probably like most children you had had repressed, had had cast aside because you're in survival mode as we are in childhood. We're just trying to make it. And trauma is so difficult to process emotionally, even on an adult level, but children don't have the skills. They don't have the wherewithal and they don't have the control to stop whatever's happening in the traumatic experience. And so they oftentimes have to repress it. And it sounds like you did that very, to my mind, difficult and yet ethical and imperative work of working on yourself simultaneously helping others, but recognizing that your ability to help others was enhanced when you were examining your own woundedness and and find healing therein.
1: You know, what I noticed was when I was working in my practice, I left the Renfrew Center after about two years. Those first five years when I was in the worst of my recovery process, a lot of the people that were coming to see me were actively involved in an eating disorder and needed help managing their symptoms. Their family members needed help helping them. So what I noticed was the people that were coming to see me weren't really talking so much about any type of abuse or sexual assault. And then probably I would say around year seven or eight in my practice, after I had been in intense therapy, dealing with my own history, then I started meeting people who were repressing, who were avoiding their trauma. And I remember talking with my therapist and saying, it's so interesting that as I go through this process, the more I know about myself, the more I understand, the better I can manage my own stuff. That's what's coming into my office. It it was almost like my practice opened up as I was opening up, but in the right time. I never felt like, I was working with someone early in my recovery on an issue that I hadn't addressed or dealt with. So that was one of the things that I really valued about my process of owning my abuse. I was able to say to myself, in order to be able to help others, I really do need to work through this or I'm going to fall apart. I would never be able to help somebody else accept
0: what a family member did to them if I couldn't do that for my own self. Yeah. And it's so painful when you talk about it. It just, it just makes me think of just how difficult it is to do that, to face it and to acknowledge. And yet, as we've been saying, how imperative it is. For healing. And I, I get the question sometimes, I'm sure you do too. Sometimes people wonder if therapists can be effective with something that they haven't personally experienced. Mm-hmm. And of course they can. No mm-hmm. question. Empathy is what allows us to put ourselves in our clients' shoes. And we don't have to have walked through that exact path to understand and to be able to be present and supportive and part of their healing process. At the same time, I think sometimes there is that extra measure of ability to support someone when we truly know because we've gone through something so similar in our own personal journey? One of the things I love about my work, and this is why I wrote the book, I meet people who have survived
1: so many different types of trauma I meet people who've been in combat, I meet people who've lost a family member suddenly. I've I've worked with people who've lost babies, children. And those are those experiences are very different than surviving childhood sexual abuse, but what I love about my work is I still can tap into those feelings of abandonment or those feelings of despair rage and I can access those feelings and still be able to really connect with people and offer whether it's suggestions, coping strategies, different different ways to reframe experiences. I can do that. So that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write this why I wanted to write the book. Originally, I thought I was going to be writing a book that was just going to be about surviving childhood abuse and once I signed with this publisher and they said to me, we, we don't want a book just on abuse. We want a book that addresses all kinds of trauma. It, it felt like it was so right. And it was almost like, this is what I've been wanting to do for so long. I want to be able to unite survivors and help people understand, even if your trauma is so different, there's so much we share in, in common.
0: Yeah, there is and that's in a sense it's really wonderful that your publisher encouraged you to cast maybe a broader net so that others could feel and understand through reading that okay wait really there is a universality to these traumatic experiences that we've experienced and recognize that there Is more support, more comfort, more commonality available to people? Because sometimes they feel, like you said, so alienated, so isolated, and to know that they can find a common ground and a common understanding with other people who've maybe not gone through the exact same pain, but their pain is similar enough that they can feel that that bond of, okay, I'm not alone, and someone else gets it.
1: It reminds me of somebody I was just talking with a few weeks ago. She's still a teenager. She's about to graduate high school, and she lost her sister to cancer when she was 10. And through the last eight years, she struggled with depression. She struggles with eating disorder issues, body image issues. And when we started talking about the loss of her sister, I've never experienced that kind of loss. I can't even imagine, especially because at the time she was still a kid and she loved her sister. But what I could connect with was that part of her that felt like, I can't live my life with this. I can't accept this. When we started talking about how unfair it felt for her to have to lose her sister in such an awful and traumatic way. I can relate to that. I really can. And while I'm not sitting in the session sharing, I'm not talking about what it was like for me to come to terms with my history. And I can feel that she understands that I understand some of what she's saying. That's, I think that's really healing for somebody who's dealt with something that just feels impossible to accept.
0: Yeah. And that is really, that's so well put. It feels impossible to accept. And part of that grieving process and part of the process of coming to terms with a new reality that is not the reality you wanted. It's a reality that is laden with pain and disappointment and hurt and anger and all these negative emotions that can become so overwhelming. And another emotion that you speak to in the book is the shame Mm -hmm. that is associated with trauma. Can you speak to that? I I mean, shame is really the core to living through a multitude
1: of events. The way I think of shame is it's that feeling that keeps us so stuck. It's the biggest obstacle to moving through and finding ways to live with whatever experiences that we've had. And when I think of the word shame, these are some of the statements that people talk to me about. They say things like, the world would be much better off without me, Mm. or it's all my fault, or I'm disgusting. I'm ugly. Everybody hates me. I'm never going to be anything in this world. It's the impact of living through a situation where there wasn't a way to, to process or understand what was happening. I know for pe- I know for people who have survived different types of abuse, the behaviors that are done to them result in those statements. So part of being able to work through different types of abuse or sexual assault, domestic violence is being able to recognize that what you were experiencing was not about you. That was right. about the person who was inflicting the injury, the pain. And this is part of why it's so important that people speak and own their experience, even if they can't do it until they're in their 30s or 40s, or even I meet people in their 60s who just start talking for the first time. Mm -hmm. If we don't talk about the belief systems that we're living with, then we walk around living our lives with shame. And shame is one of those feelings that can get activated in the smallest of situations. I was talking to somebody earlier today, we were having a session and she was expressing her discomfort with with using the video on the session. And mm. she wanted to hop over onto the phone. Mm. And I was like, sort of making light and saying, don't you want to see me? We really need to see each other as making light. And she started talking about that feeling of I feel like I'm getting in trouble. And I was just sort of messing with her and saying, I like face-to-face contact. For me, it, it just feels more connected. Once she could identify that she was starting to slip into the shame, we could place it. And that came from, for her, she grew up in a family where when something went wrong, she was made to feel at fault. When she needed to get help for her eating disorder when she was a teenager, her mom told her, you are ruining this family with that eating disorder. So something as small as an interaction in therapy that's really just, it doesn't even mean anything. It it triggered such a strong feeling, but then within 10 minutes, because we were able to place it and identify what that feeling was, we could move past it and we could keep going and she could stay in
0: her body and be in the session. If you're into personal development, If you geek out on psych research and if you're looking to level up in all realms of love and life, a love and life support group is for you. In love and life groups, you'll enjoy the camaraderie of connecting with like-minded women. You'll feel encouraged and empowered by others endeavoring to thrive in all realms of love and life. We all know there's strength in numbers. So join us for deep conversations designed to provide healing and promote growth. Head over to my website for more details. As you spoke to, Therapy is so powerful. And it's, yes, of course, the training that you've gone through and the the tools and techniques and interventions that you bring to each session. And it's also just being completely present to be able to work with something like that, which was not – there's no technique for that. Like – all of a sudden you realize there's something going on with her that I'm experiencing right now in this moment. Like you said, she's triggered by the idea of being on video. That triggered for her this feeling of shame, of I'm doing something wrong because I ruined the family with my eating disorder back in high school. And all of that was able to be brought to the surface in a very organic, natural way by you just going, let's talk about this. What just happened there? Let's process that. That's why people who are outside the field, sometimes they think, well, if you just had some really good friends who are good listeners, then you wouldn't need a therapist. And I always say, well, yes, good friends are very important. And all the psych research shows that social support is is critical for a healthy living. But friendship and therapy are two very different relationships.
1: You need both. Before I broke my silence and I actually didn't know I was doing this. I I started going to therapy, but I was just like, yeah, my family's great. And I just really need to talk about my job because this job's driving me nuts. And as I was sort of superficially entering my weekly appointments, I started creating a support system. I started reaching out to therapists because I was new in the field. I would go to conferences and connect with clinicians and reach out and sort of take them on as mentors. I hired a supervisor that I sat with every week. I developed connections through my job at Renfrew and I let myself be more vulnerable, get to know them better. So there was this whole process even before I spoke of creating support for myself. And I didn't even consciously know what in the heck I was doing, (laughs) but I talked about that in my first book. It was almost like I was building strength for what was ahead. And I think the thing that I love about therapy as a patient was being able to recognize what my triggers were and, and are and how to place them. Because I think if you can't place the feeling and where it's coming from, if you can't place the shame, then what happens is, and this used to happen to me for, I mean, really for the first 40 years of my life, I think I've just really mastered this within the last 10 years, but I would go into what I called shame attacks where one thing would trigger shame and then I felt shame about everything. I felt Mm -hmm. like I sucked at my job. I felt like I shouldn't have a dog. I'm a horrible mom people hate me. And it would go on and on and on. And my head would be spinning. And I just learned through a lot, a lot of therapy, how to place the feeling. And my therapist would say things like, well, where is that coming from? Or does that feel familiar? And honestly, at the time she drove me nuts. There were times (laughs) when I would get so mad at her and say, would you stop asking me these questions? It's so annoying. But then I did a lot of writing when I was in therapy, I did lots of journaling and I could see as I was writing stuff, oh yeah, I remember feeling this way at 10, at 15, at 20, and I could figure out and identify where that all came from. And it's not that I, I don't get triggered. I get triggered every day. I have flashbacks every day. It's that I've developed these tools and this ability, I guess, to understand what the heck is happening. And and
0: then I know how to work through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the idea that that shame, if it, if it isn't identified, the the root of it, if that's not brought to light, then it's easy to have what happened to you. You were speaking to the fact that shame would then generalize to every area of your life, which is reminds me of in cognitive therapy and cognitive psych, we talk about state-dependent memories. So if I get into a, a mood of feeling bad about myself or anger, any mood, I'm more easily able to recall other times when I've felt that. And so it it's exacerbates the situation, right? So you felt shame for one instance that you got triggered somehow, and then that snowball effect. And pretty soon you're to the point where you're in a frenzy of shame and of, of self-doubt and of just horribly negative feelings. And so to be able to process some of that so that you can start taking charge of it to the extent that like, yes, I get triggered, but I don't have to then snowball into a, a state of despair and despondency. I can recognize a trigger. I can, I don't know which therapeutic orientations are your favorite, but I love act where we diffuse from the emotion or the thought. And we, Look at it and go, it's interesting. I'm having the thought that, as Dr. Hayes talks about, or I'm having the feeling that so that we can manage it without letting every little trigger because those triggers aren't little. In fact, they're big, but we also have to get through our day, right? You're the therapist. You're like, I got a session in an hour, so I have to do something with this right now that allows me to manage it, honor it, acknowledge it, but then also move into my professional (laughs) realm and be able to be present for my client
1: like to keep moving. And when I think of shame, I feel like it's the feeling that can be the most destructive. It's not just that it can make someone very sick with an eating disorder or drug addiction, but a lot of times when people are in shame attacks, they feel suicidal. A lot of people that Mm. I work with, and this was something that I experienced all through my childhood and also in my recovery when I started speaking about what happened to me, those suicidal feelings were so strong. And what I learned was, it wasn't necessarily that I wanted my life to end, it was that I wanted the pain to be over. And the root of my pain, there was grief there. But the shame was the piece that would sort of take me over the edge. Because when I'm grieving, I can nurture, I can soothe, I can call a friend. I can do things that, you know, I hang out with my dog. These are all things I used to do. But when I was in the shame, I could not access any of my supports and I couldn't use the strategies that would work for me because all I wanted to do was hide in my room and just sit in the feeling. It, the, the feeling was so paralyzing that I couldn't mobilize myself to pick up that phone or go to a class or go on a hike. So that's something that I have worked very hard on and something that I have to work very hard in teaching others how to manage it. Because when somebody is facing trauma, you're gonna confront a lot of the shame that you've buried. There's no way to,
0: you can't really circumvent that. Yeah. And you speak to that in the, in the book about those self-destructive tendencies that are very common what sorts of things are you able to do? You, you've mentioned you experienced that yourself, but then what other kind of things are you able to share with your clients to help them to manage that those self-destructive tendencies? And I'm, I'm sure at times you feel helpless. I know we've many of us have had friends who've been through some of those bouts where it, they seem inconsolable. And like you spoke to, they, they don't even want to reach out to call a friend. They don't want to be social. So those support systems that they may have even had in place can't help them because they're they, they are not in a space where they're able to receive help. So what sort of th- sorts of things are you able to do with your clients to help them?
1: I try to help, My clients understand the role of the shame. This is what I learned. I learned that when I allowed the shame to take over, it was because I did not want it to be so. It was the part of me that was protecting my family, and it's just easier to make it my fault or easier to think that I'm making this all up than to put the responsibility where it belongs. So, one of the things that I talk to people about is. If you weren't feeling powerless, if you weren't feeling helpless, hopeless, what do you think you would be feeling? Usually, what people realize is that they would be feeling angry and they would be feeling like this is not okay. What? what happened, what was done to me. And again, even with with my patient I was talking about earlier, who nobody did anything to her, but losing her sister was still, it was very traumatic to, to be able to recognize that it's something that happened to you and it's nothing that you, you could have done. There's nothing you could have done to change that. So being able to accept it is what it is and learning how to not take on the blame and the responsibility is crucial. I used to do this and I've talked to patients about doing this. When you feel powerless, do something that makes you feel powerful. When you feel hopeless, do something that makes you feel hopeful. So for instance, I had somebody who was just so in the midst of the process of uncovering and saw nothing happy or bright in what was ahead for her. So I said, I want you to go home and write down the reasons why you're confronting this now. That was something that I did. I would go Mm -hmm. home and say to myself, what in the world am I doing this for? This is horrible. But then I would write things down like, well, I want to have a kid. I want to be able to be in a relationship. I want to be able to not feel all this pain. I want to live more freely and in the present. So that's been very helpful, I think, for people when they can keep reevaluating why they're doing the work that they're doing. I've done this when I work with partners and when I work with couples. I bring in the partner or the best friend or the parent, if that's appropriate, and I try to incorporate them into this part of the process so that when... My patient is in a place where he or she just can't see the hope. Then I ask for help from other people because sometimes mm. it does take that. It takes other people to say to my patient or it took people to say to me, you know, I know you feel this way now. I know you feel like you're never going to be able to be a parent. I know you feel like your life is going to suck forever, but it's not. You're not going to always feel this way. So being able to call upon other people who can give reality checks and be sort of like the holder of hope. And I think as a therapist, that's part of what our job is. We try to hold on to hope for people when they feel there is none to be able to bring other people into the therapy
0: or into the work really can be so helpful. I love that phrase holder of hope. And I, Just a a little sidebar. I have my best friend when I was engaged to be married the first time, which didn't happen. I called off my wedding, runaway bride, blah, blah, blah. But I was so hopeless in that moment. And I was still young. I was just 34. But I just had felt like I was getting knocked down and, and beat up in the realm of love. And I, I lost hope. And I'll never forget my maid of honor said, as I literally we were having the conversation where I decided I was going to postpone my wedding initially and then called it off eventually. And I just was like, Heather, I just, I have no, I, I have no hope. And she's like, that's okay, Karen. I will hold hope for you until you can hope oh, again. So she, so I know.
1: She, did, she did that thing that we were just talking about. And yes, I mean, I don't know if you remember at the time feeling like, you know, you kind of want to like yell at her and say, you don't know what you're talking about. Because <laughs> You can yeah. feel that when you're in the despair or in the, in the sorrow or the grief, but that you don't ever forget that, I bet.
0: I've never forgotten it. And I think in my case, I mean, it wasn't trauma to the degree we're talking about here. So I didn't have that very angry reaction. I just thought, well that's sweet. I felt very despondent. I just didn't, it, it didn't really feel like it was powerful in the moment, but yeah. looking back, I see how powerful it was because yeah. she didn't just say it. She actively lived it. <laughs> like as my friend, she wouldn't let me despair when I would start to go down that road of it's never going to happen. She'd say, just pump the brakes, <laughs> pump the brakes. What you feel right now is valid and legitimate. But let's also remember that the feeling is this intense in this moment, but it may not and probably right. won't be this intense for forever. And that's something that we have to, it's a tension, isn't it? Because as helpers, we want to acknowledge and validate the emotion. And at the same time, we know that ruminating can exacerbate those emotional states, so we don't want the, the client or the friend or whoever we're in connection with, we don't want them to be wallowing such that they believe that that emotion will be pervasive forever. That would, in fact, lead them to be more hopeless.
1: You know what's what's hard is that I meet a lot of people who have lived in a dark, dreary world for, for years. So when I say to somebody like this, this teenager who I adore, I absolutely love this kid. She has spent so many years of her life feeling this hopeless feeling, feeling sort of like it would be better off if I weren't here. So when I say to her what your best friend said to you, sometimes I feel almost like, Who am I to say this to her? She's been living this world, this reality. This is the life that she's been living for more than half of the time that she's been on this earth. So Mm. sometimes, sometimes too, we have to just let people be in the feeling. And, you know, if 20 years ago when my therapist is saying to me, you will not feel like this forever. And I just want to like, you know, sort of throw her out of the office. I used to joke with her and say, if you say that one more time, (laughs) I am going to take you and throw you out that window because she would get me crazy mad. But to be able to recognize it with some people, we may have to tell them more than once. We may have to also sometimes just sit with that person and say, I know that's how you feel right now. Just even being able to phrase it like that makes space for the person to feel heard. But also, we're not sitting in the in the dumpster with them. We're, we're sitting in the moment with them, but we're going to pull them out and, and help them build that sense of strength within themselves to climb out of that hole.
0: It really is attention. And I remember when I was getting my master's in clinical psych and I was more at that time kind of more drawn to a Rogerian, maybe psychodynamic. And then as I started practicing and then using all the therapeutic tools that I had learned in grad school on myself during my own uh, seasons mm-hmm. of frustration and pain, I found that I'm actually super cognitive. So it's funny, I look back and I go, oh my gosh, no, I was I was CBT all the way, didn't realize it at the time. Yeah. And yeah. so that's an, that's the other tension too and something that just for those who aren't in the in the field, I think they find it interesting sometimes to realize that therapy can be quite different based on, obviously, the therapist's orientation. But if you're not in the field, you wouldn't know. So sometimes people come to me and they ask me what kind of therapist I would recommend. And of course, because I have that bent toward cognitive, I always steer people in that direction because that's what's transformed my life. When I started identifying irrational beliefs that I was holding on to and realizing that those disempowering beliefs were absolutely then fueling my feelings that were causing me to remain in an emotional state that I didn't like. It didn't serve me. It was keeping me hopeless and not hopeful. So obviously I kind of lean in that direction. If you have just a few seconds to help me out, I would so appreciate it. You can do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts, giving us a five-star rating and a few sentences of review that helps others find the program and join the love and life family. What do you recommend when people are looking for a therapist, one that would be a really good fit for them, especially if they have gone through intense trauma? What sort of orientations do you find to be most effective for this work?
1: It's interesting that you ask that because I think it's very dependent on the individual. There are some people that really do benefit from DBT, CBT. Then there's other people who, do, who really need to go back and do more like the EMDR work because they're mm-hmm. holding on to something from very early in childhood. There's some people, and I guess this would be for most of the practice that I've, uh, with my patients is there's going to be periods of time where CBT is going to be important. Then there's going to be another period of time where it's really going to be about working through grief. So working with a therapist who's done grief work, working with a therapist who has done some training and understanding of trauma and the impact. When people ask me, how do I find a therapist that's going to be able to help me in the recovery from trauma piece? I don't necessarily think it's so much about the theoretical background of the therapist. I think it's more about developing a trust or a sense of belonging or feeling like I feel like this person can help me. For me, and I see this for a lot of patients, it's not so much um, what my therapist did, it's how she reacted. It's being able to see that somebody is empathic and patient. That, that's important with when you're working through trauma. If you if you are working with somebody who just sort of wants to see results in eight sessions, that's probably not going to be the way to go when you're working through something that you've lived through that you've been burying. I think it's important also when you're working with someone, especially outpatient therapy, that you keep in mind, your therapist cannot be your only support. You're going to need just as much support in between sessions as you are in the session So that's another thing that I talk to people about. I don't just talk to them about finding the right therapist. I talk to them about making sure you've set up your supply system. It's about recognizing that if I'm going to be facing these kinds of experiences, I need a team behind me. And your team might look professional. It might be a nutritionist. It might be a psychiatrist. It might be a therapist. It could be a group. For some people, it's about... I'm going to need my partner to come to therapy with me. I'm going to need to make sure I sign up for a ton of classes. I'm going to need to make sure I have somebody to eat with at least twice a week. So there's so many different facets to getting yourself set up. And there's really no such thing as too much support. And when it comes to working with a therapist, trauma survivors are pretty intuitive And I say to people, if you go meet with somebody or you've met with them for a few times and you feel like, you know what, I don't feel like this is going to work, make sure you go with your gut. Don't do that thing where you're like, oh, but you know, I don't want to hurt her feelings. Maybe I should just keep going. Definitely don't do that because that's one of the things that a lot of people who've lived through different types of abuse and trauma already struggle with, people pleaser uh, syndrome I call it or just feeling like I can't say no. So this is the opportunity to really make sure that it's the right person for you. Whether you're CBT, DBT, EMDR, those things are great and they're important, but that's not that's not the the biggest piece when you're trying to look for the right therapist.
0: Yeah, I always recommend to people that ultimately it's the relationship and the rapport that you have. So if you don't feel that connection. That's telling you something. This is not the therapist for you. And too often people go, well, I guess therapy isn't for me. And I always want to say, no, you just mm-hmm. didn't find the right connection.
1: Mm-hmm. I feel so strongly about that. When people call me and they say, "You know, I want to meet with you. I want to do therapy with you. I say to them, Let's just meet. I want you to make sure that you feel comfortable because if you don't feel comfortable, and again, like as therapists, we can't take that personally. If somebody doesn't feel comfortable working with us, it's not necessarily anything about us, but we need to be respectful of that. And I really I think it's so important. And I think you're right. Sometimes people think, I met a therapist, you know, he or she was a weirdo or they didn't know what the heck they were doing. I'm not doing therapy. And I say, you know what, before you do that, think of it like dating, like. You just need to meet one great person. Maybe you have to go on five dates with five different people before you find the right person. It's sort of like that when you're trying to find the right therapist, too, because therapy is such a personal, vulnerable, scary connection, and there has to be trust, and there has to be boundaries. There has to be an understanding that the therapist cannot keep you alive. You need to keep yourself alive. There's all these different pieces that you've got to consider, especially when you want to work through something that literally can undo you when you think about it.
0: Yeah. It's, it's funny you, you made the analogy with dating because of course, so much of my work is dating relationships, marriage, all that sort of stuff. And I do make yep. that analogy too. I think of it, I'm thinking it's a lot like dating. It's nothing wrong with the person, nothing wrong with you. If it's just not a fit, it's not a fit. And the same with the therapist client relationship. There has to be safety. The process of recovery is really about
1: learning how to go with what your gut tells you and implementing boundaries, feeling like I could see myself telling this person, oh no, heck to the no, to be able to <laughs> to picture yourself having your voice, to be able to picture, could I call this person if I was really upset? I mean, again, with therapy, it's not that different, right? Like you need to feel safe. You need to know that you can say no to, just because you're a patient doesn't mean you don't have the right to set boundaries. When it comes to finding a therapist or when it comes to meeting a partner or even a best friend, you need to feel safe and you need to know that your voice is going to be heard and respected and that there's going to be equality and respect in that relationship, or it's not worth pursuing it.
0: For sure. It's it's not going to be effective, right? I and mean, right. it just isn't as simple as that. And uh, it's as complex as that and as nuanced as that, but it's as simple as that as well. Sherry, I want to ask you something you kind of touched on a little bit, and it it actually weaves into my experience working with clients who'd experienced trauma. My first job as a therapist, I was working in the South Side of Chicago with children in the child welfare system. So obviously, a child does not end up in the child welfare system unless they've gone through some intense trauma of abuse, abandonment, neglect. Typically, the profile of the child I was working with, the mother was addicted to a substance mm-hmm. and the father was not in the picture. He was either incarcerated or perhaps involved with some sort of street life that he was not usually around too often. So this is the the picture of the children I was working with. So they'd obviously gotten through so much trauma and working with children is a little bit different, obviously. But one of the things, and you spoke a little bit to the family One of the things I was very much cautioned to be mindful of when you are in the helping role, especially with kids because they're vulnerable, the tendency is, of course, there's this child in front of me in my office and all I can think of is how his mom is horrible because if she would get her act together, then she wouldn't be breaking his heart over and over again. Of course, you know, with addicts, oftentimes she would make promises she couldn't keep I'm gonna I'm gonna get cleaned up and then I'm gonna get you back in the house with me and then the child being disappointed time and time again it's very hard obviously child welfare is known to be one of the most difficult realms of social services for this reason One of the things we had to be careful about as I mentioned was that we want to take up for the child we want to advocate for the child we want to defend the child and the tendency might be to then badmouth the parent not a good plan because obviously the child, this is the only mom that that child has as flawed as she is, as broken as she is, as objectively speaking, not that great a mother she is. This is the only mother that child has. And if we would disparage the mother, it would then further alienate the child. And the child may think something like, well, if my mom's no good, then I come from her. So what's the chance of me having anything good within me? And all these kinds of very complex Dynamics that you experience as a therapist. And then, for again, I was working with children. And so I'm thinking these kids may grow up and they'll be in therapy at some point in the future. How do you reconcile one, the again, the complexities of the dynamics of the family when a child has been abused within that family, having to come to terms with the fact that my mother, who was supposed to protect me, was in fact the source of my abuse? Mm -hmm. That's a pretty stark and painful reality to face and yet we need to do that to some degree, and then to make peace, and then is forgiveness part of it? What, Where do you go with the family realities when we're talking about childhood trauma?
1: I mean, it's, it's so difficult. It's probably the hardest situation as therapists that we will have to confront as not even just as therapists, but just as human beings. What I try to do, and I try to bring this into the room when I'm working with Teenagers. I see a lot of teenagers who they just are in really awful situations, and it's it's as a therapist, I know I can't I can't fix that. I try and just really talk to kids, teenagers, about how they can kind of go out in the world and try and not replace a parent, but try and get the things that they need and want from their parent and aren't getting, try and get it from other people. Mm -hmm. So it's really about saying, well, I feel like I could never accept this about my mom or my dad. This is what it is. And I can live with that if I can find a way to give myself some of that or find other people. I mean, with kids, it's obviously very difficult because they're kids. So yeah. we can't expect kids to know how to nurture themselves and go out and find a support system. But you would be surprised how resilient kids are and how smart they are. And I think that to be able to also to, to keep in mind that if you talk with kids about who are their teachers or coaches or who are some other people that they could share a story with or send a card to or express a feeling, kids have those people in their lives. So to give them permission to say to them, it, it it's okay to go to other people for things that you can't get from your parents because kids also feel guilty. They feel like they right. should not want to get something from another person that they are supposed to get from their mom or dad. They feel like that's a betrayal to the parent. Right. So to also talk with them and say, you know, parents have problems too. Parents have illnesses or issues that prevent them from being able to give you all of these things. And it, you're not hurting your mom. You're not hurting your dad. If you want to learn more from your coach, or if you want to ask your guidance counselor for advice, you're not betraying your parent. You're, you're getting what you need
0: and that will help you. Yeah. And it takes a bit of maturity though, that I think, like you said, some kids aren't going to be quite there yet. And how could they, they're still in the midst of the pain. And it's really hard to see that objectively we can see it, but yeah, it's.
1: I have said things to kids like, you know, it's not your fault. And they say to me, but it has to be my fault. So sometimes I spend sessions with little ones just saying to them, I don't think it's your fault. Why do you think it's your fault? What makes you think that? And I just try and get down on their sort of processing level. And if I was told that that it wasn't my fault, I think I probably wouldn't have suffered near as much as I did. And when I think of some of the patients that I work with in their 30s, 40s, 50s, who still feel like it's their fault. I think the same thing. I think if somebody could have just told you what you now know is the truth, we probably wouldn't be where we're
0: at right now. Yeah, and I think that's powerful too, to hear it from a, a trusted adult. Mm-hmm. And even if they don't have ears to hear it in that moment, maybe it's a planting the seed type situation where later they are able to go, wait a minute, Miss mm-hmm. Sherry told me, no, it wasn't my fault maybe as they again their cognitive development continues to to provide them with more tools and ways of processing what they went through and to really be able to internalize that truth that you are sharing with them
1: the only other thing i was just thinking with that is also maybe ask them what do your teachers say to you or what what does your coach say to you tell me some things your teacher Says are good qualities about you, or what does your coach say to you? Because I think, too, if we can pull in any adults that w- the child looks to as a trusted authority figure, they can help us in that process. Then we can feel like it's not just y- you or I that's telling our patient this, it's also therapist thinks this, the coach thinks this. My best friend's mom told me the other day this thing about me
0: that really can help, too. Yeah, because it's basically that feeling that seems so overwhelmingly true and then we're finding evidence that is contrary to that deep painful feeling of I'm no right. good or I'm worthless and it's and when you compile enough evidence then we have to appeal to our logic and go, "Well, wait a minute, this can't be true because the coach, my therapist, my teacher, they're saying right. things to the contrary." Yeah. Right. Let's connect on social. I'm most active on Instagram, where I post original quotes, infographics, and I tackle trending topics in my "Love Smarter, Not Harder" IGTVs. On Insta, you can find me at Dr. Karen i R I N. I'm also on Facebook at Dr. Karen Anderson Abril, and on Twitter at Dr. Karen Anderson. So speaking of kids, you have a son and I'm curious how what has motherhood meant for you in your journey from trauma recovery?
1: I mean, motherhood is like the best thing ever. I just love it. It makes me like love my life. But I think the thing that it has done is it's helped me to see what we were just talking about, that feeling like it was my fault when I parent, especially when he was younger and so vulnerable, and I realized I could do anything to him right now. You know, like he's this little tiny kid to be able to recognize the vulnerability of a kid. That was the most transformative part of, of my process to be able to actually say to myself, you know, Sherry, it really wasn't your fault. There was actually Mm -hmm. nothing that you could have done to stop it. There was nothing that you could have done to cause it. Having, being a parent and being in that role, that's what made the light bulbs go off for me. Um, I had to go into his room in the middle of the night to give him nebulizer treatments when he was between the ages of two and four. And when I would go in there in the middle of the night and look at just how innocent he was and how helpless he sound asleep, and I'm putting this mask on him, I used to grab a hold of his little hand. That was my way of trying to say, you're good. Everything is okay. And as I did those nebulizer treatments, I would say to myself, it wasn't your fault. Like, Mm. here's the proof. Here it is
0: right now. That's what did it for me. That's really powerful. And I do, you know, when we're talking about trauma and healing and certainly different stages of our lives can bring back elements of what we've been through And we process it in a different way. And I love hearing that the experience of becoming a mother allowed you to process even further healing because you were so aware of the power a parent has, which is just the way it is. And you're the adult and you had this innocent child who was defenseless against you. And thank God it stopped with you, which I'm sure is also really just a rewarding and healing in and of itself to know that that generational curse, so to speak, is done. That's like the revenge. That's
1: what (laughs) I used to say to my therapist. The best revenge is saying, I am going to break this cycle. And Mm. now that I've been a parent for 10 years, I can say that wholeheartedly and be proud about that. And the other thing, I will say this for anybody out here who's listening that's a parent, if you feel like you lost your childhood, and again, it could be through any type of trauma, whether you lost a parent to an addiction or you were abused as a child or you were abandoned and 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 had to go through the whole adoption thing, whatever whatever your childhood loss is, this thing of being a parent, this is what I love. I can't go back and relive my childhood, but I can have such a good time being a parent and watching my child, whether it's watching him play basketball or hearing about, you know, something that somebody did at school or being able to stand on the soccer field and watch him play a soccer game, or even just when he's talking to his friends, that joy and that, fun that I feel going through those experiences, even though I'm not a kid and I'm more like a witness now, it is so amazing. There are times when I feel like I'm more a kid now than I ever was in my whole life and I'm 50 mm-hmm. years old. It, what what it does when you're in motherhood after you've lost so much as a child, it's like, it makes you feel like you're going to live forever. I am convinced I am going to live for another 150 <laughs> years because I feel like I'm
0: getting younger as I'm a mother longer. Mm. It reminds me of something I've heard it put this way, that we have two chances for family. And for many people who are born into a family they did not choose and experience a childhood that no one would choose, that is painful and it is a loss. But then we get the opportunity in adulthood to create a new family And it may look different than we expected, but we have the control at this point because we can do our healing, we can do the work, and we can break those generational curses and we can bring to a child the childhood that we never got. And then, like you said, vicariously experience that joy. It doesn't make up for the lost childhood, but it certainly is an opportunity to at least move toward healing and hope for the next generation. And
1: to be able to let go of some of that anger and just say, look at this beautiful life that I'm living and mm. look at these people. I talked about this in the in my book and I also, Judge Aquilina and I talk a lot about this on our podcast. I call it creating family by choice. And mm. I started doing that before I became a mom. I started taking on different what I felt like different roles. I felt like I feel like the younger sister in this one relationship with my friend, Sandy. I feel like the big sister with this person. I feel like this person, he's not my dad, but his ability to look out for me, gosh, it feels really good. These are the people that I start bringing into my life. This was years before I became a mom. And now that I'm a mom, this idea of creating family by choice, I'm more determined now than ever because now I have it's not just me anymore. So I want to make sure that uh, the, my little guy is not feeling like I'm the only person. We we have friends that we, would, we could call aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents. And it's amazing. And we get to pick them. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, you know, I try not to say this too much to people because I don't want to piss people off. But <laughs> it can be kind of fun to have a family by choice because then I don't have to deal with all the stuff that you have to deal with when it is actually family, you know, every family has their stuff. So to be able to have those people in our lives that we choose, that, that can be really very uplifting. And there's so much joy in that. I mean, holidays for us are great <laughs> because I we get to pick where we're going. Right. And many people can't
0: say that. Sadly. Right.
1: That's why I try not to say it too much because I don't want to <laughs> piss people off, but it has been a a saving grace for me. Because if I only allowed myself to stay with the people who were put into my world, and this is for a lot of people I work with in therapy too, my life would not be happy. And you know, again, people talk about this all the time. When you become an adult, we have so much more freedom to make choices.
0: You don't get Mm -hmm. as many choices when you're little. That's for sure. As we wrap up, the title of your book is essentially what you're living. You're thriving after trauma. And I think so often we think of just surviving trauma and just making it, but you speak to stories of thriving. And I think that's what we all want at this crack of life, whether we have 50 more years or 150 more years, like you're planning to have, but we're thriving. And and I love your story. It's one of hope. The stories of your clients, also stories of hope. Trauma does not have to be a sentence of misery and despair and despondency for an entire lifetime.
1: Absolutely. And the only other thing I want to say thriving doesn't mean, oh, my life is all happy and good and Mm. la, la, la. I'm always dancing around. Listen, (laughs) I have my moments. I have my days. I had moments earlier today where I just, I was triggered by some things. So it's not like life is just one big, you know, happy festival. It, there are really, really tough moments, but it's what I, choose to do with those moments. And and you can thrive and still go through a bunch of bumps. That doesn't mean that you're going to go back into feeling like your life isn't worth it. Thriving after trauma is about learning how to manage our trauma, feeling worthy and deserving of having full lives. It doesn't mean that life is just one happy moment after another. That's not what that means. So hopefully if people read the book, they can see that. And I'm hoping that you know, I feel like that's some of what we talked about today.
0: That's exactly it. It's thriving is complex. It doesn't mean you're on the mountaintop every moment, but it's, right. I love how you put it and I wrote it down. I'll be using it for a post on Instagram. You said, I have tough moments, but it's what I choose. To do with those moments. That's so empowering. Sherry, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Where can people find your book? And I think we talked about maybe a promo code or an autographed copy, or what are the options for them?
1: Yeah, this is fun stuff. So you can find my book anywhere books are sold. But if you want to get a discount on the book, if you order it directly from my publisher, I'll just say the, the website, it's just www.org. R-O-W-M-A-N.com and then use the promo code, which is rlfandf 30 If you use that code, you can get 30% off the ebook or the hardcover. If that was too much to write down, if people want to just go to my website, I have the promo code on there as well. And that's just my name, which is www.sharibotwin. My email address is in there. If, if somebody wants a signed copy of the book, I have copies here. All they need to do is, is send me an email and say, can you please send me an autographed copy of your book? And I'm happy to do that.
0: That's so wonderful. And thanks for sharing your website. How about your social media presence? Where can they find you there? Oh,
1: right. My social media handles. I've learned these terms now that I've been doing this. (laughs) If people want to find me on Instagram, they can go to warriorbotwin7. My podcast that I just launched with Judge Aquilina, we have a page on there and it's at warriorwomenspeak. I'm also on Facebook. And all you need to do is look for Sherry Botwin, LCSW. Those are the platforms I tend to be the most visible on. But again, if people want to find me, they can go to my website and all of my social media handles are also on there.
0: Excellent. Thank you once again, Sherry. I've enjoyed our conversation. I really appreciate your time.
1: And thank you for having me, by the way, and you are doing awesome work over there. So you go and you keep getting getting yourself out there because you're doing great work
0: oh thanks so much i appreciate that feedback
1: of course
0: the love and life hack for this week is thrive after trauma it's possible healing is available hope is real and trauma does not have to define your entire life Thank you as always for sharing a part of your day with me. I hope my conversation with Sherry has inspired you to believe in the potential of thriving no matter what we've experienced and endured in life. There are just a few spots left in my next Love and Life support group. It's starting Monday, April 26th. If you're interested, head over to my website, We'd love to have you join us. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril. And until next time, make it a great week.
1: In Life, Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer Dr. Karen Anderson April